The joy of singing always seems to lift our spirit, to excite our inner being, and to set us on a course of a joyful service unto our God. We're always so thankful for the voices God has given us, allowing us to blend them together with a four-part harmony that's before us, and to do so with such a sweet, sweet sound unto God. Always we're thankful for our song leaders and for the superior, superb job that they always do. It is true that tonight we come to a lesson for this part of our service entitled The House of David. And so for the next few moments, I would invite us to give thought to that text that Brother Glenn read just a moment ago from 1 Chronicles 17. And in the midst of that, to find some applications that reach so very far into the future from the time that those statements were first made to David. I might suggest as we begin with these introductory comments, we'll do so by appreciating the great characters of the Bible and so often the blessing that comes their way by remembering some of those things that they faced, the activities of faith that did describe their walk in life. Perhaps you and I so easily can remember the issues surrounding David. I would ask you to think that David truly was a monumental character in the Old Testament. If you think about the number of chapters devoted to some of those great people of faith, like Abraham and Moses and some others, we find that David occupies a fair section of the Old Testament. In particular, you and I can easily recollect the centerpiece that he takes in the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, a small mention in 1 Kings, frequent mention in both Psalms, as well as scattered references throughout many of the remaining Old Testament and even New Testament books. David truly was a hallmark character. And yet as we reflect on his life, which you and I shall do briefly tonight using this text, I think we'll find that the major blessing he affords to you and to me reaches in fact to that which we're even enjoying as Christians today. It is with that in mind, those last thoughts on that slide. You probably noticed in the very reading that reference was made to the house of David. I'd like to begin the lesson with a question or two. What was that house of David? What did God mean when He made reference to that? And as He made discussion about the nature of David as a penultimate figure, one that would in fact look down the stream of time, his kingdom would never end, what was David to be and who were those that were to occupy that, that fulfillment? Let's begin this lesson then by looking a little bit more carefully at the features of David himself. And I've entitled this slide just a brief reminder of the high place that David occupied in the very nature of God's respect to him. That high place might well begin like this. It really begins with such innocency, doesn't it? In 1 Samuel, we remember the people demanded of Samuel, Give us a king that we may, we may be like the nations round about us. 1 Samuel 8, verses 5 and 20. And as the people made that request of Samuel, Samuel petitioned God, and God said, Give them what they've asked. God did make note on that occasion, however, that it was not ultimately that which was His will, but He allowed the people to have what they wanted. And so it was that from that moment we find that God made selection of Saul to be the first king of Israel. The very next chapter begins with a rather wonderful description of this man named Saul. He was handsome. He was tall. He was at that moment in life rather humble and rather selfless in his desire to uphold the will and law of God. 
But that seemed to change rather quickly, didn't it? By the time we reach 1 Samuel 13, we already remember that were already some choices he made that were very unfortunate. He usurped the power of the priest, and not long thereafter, he overtly disobeyed God when it came to the Amalekites. We notice that as punishment, God told him, the kingdom will be taken from you. Samuel made that pronouncement by the very decree and verdict of the God of heaven. And God even made note that one, your neighbor, a man better than you, will be selected to take your place. As we open 1 Samuel 16, David was just a young lad, the youngest of Jesse's boys. He, in fact, was out tending the sheep, and the others were assembled and gathered, and one by one they were passed before Samuel, but God selected none of them. When the question was asked, are these all the sons? Jesse confirmed there was one more. Bring him, Samuel said. When he was brought, the anointing oil was poured on him. He was to be the next king. David, a youth who was so young, who was so energetic, who was so humble, and who was so desirous with great earnestness to defend the cause of God. It is with that in mind some of these statements come before us. That choice of David. Isn't it still interesting that he is called not once but twice in the Word of God a man after God's own heart? A man after God's own heart. I suppose few things could better be put on a tombstone than that. A man after God's own heart. And yet we notice in the text of Acts 13, 22, even in the heart of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, while preaching in Antioch, made reference to David in that very way. I would suggest that as we reflect on that attribute of David, doesn't it lead us most quickly to this? David did rise to great prominence, but he did so by the power of God working through him. It was he who felled the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 with only one stone, but it was because the God of heaven was in fact providing the strength that allowed him to proceed. You notice that even under threat of death from Saul, he escaped and time and again he was there to encourage Saul to think as he should. It is with those thoughts in mind. Notice again the statement of the reading just a moment ago in 1 Chronicles 17. There specifically in verse number 7 it says, Now therefore thou shalt thus say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. At the time God made selection of David, he had no thought of being the king. He again was just a youth, the youngest of Jesse's sons. But yet God saw in him the potential, the promise, and the one that would be raised to ultimate status as the next king of Israel. Might I pause to ask us to ponder the potential that might rest in our lives. Does God see in you and me a person with an humble and submissive heart who He can use as an instrument for goodness and an instrument with great influence even over the lives of many others? We are admonished to ever allow our abilities and talents to be utilized in that way. 1 Peter 4 verse 10. It might well be then as we continue our journey. David did then become the second king of Israel. After Saul died in 1 Samuel 31, we find not many chapters thereafter that all the people in 2 Samuel 5 did elevate David to the second king of Israel. And there 
He reigned for a grand total of 40 years over the people of God. As David served as king, notice this lofty description found in the heart of the Old Testament. It is a bit of a lengthy reading, but it's one I would encourage you to consider as it speaks to David and as it speaks of David. It's found in the 89th Psalm. We'll begin reading in Psalm chapter 89, verse number 20. And please listen to the description that here God set forth concerning David himself. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, mine arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me. Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments... Then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor, uh, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me." That reads through verse 36 of Psalm 89. You probably noticed in the course of those statements, some magnificent statements. Reference was made to the fact God said, I will never lose sight of the faithfulness that I have expressed relative to David. Furthermore, He said, I will make my covenant with him and it shall never ever fail. A verse that so quickly comes to mind that is an associate of that one is found in the closing paragraph of Jeremiah 36. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 33. And in that closing paragraph, God said, Just as surely as there is a covenant, a commandment, a certainty relative to the sun and the moon, my covenant with David is just as certain as that. I would suggest that for the remainder of the lesson, you and I can give attention then to what about the nature of this covenant that is so grand that is so firm and so specific that God has mentioned it in passages like these. As you and I think about the covenant under description, it allows us to race to the bottom of that slide. It is true that we are on the very verge, the cliff edge, if you please, of a tremendous set of promises, and they all have a centerpiece linked to David. What about them? Let us see as this next slide comes before us. You'll notice at the very top of that slide, we immediately notice that God turned His attention in this statement before us in 1 Chronicles 17. After He made statement about the blessing upon David, He then broadened it. Listen to the statements that the prophet made regarding David. Verse number 8, 
And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. As God closes that aspect, He makes the statement to David, I have in fact been with you. You've enjoyed military victory over your enemies. You've enjoyed a peacefulness in your kingdom. And needless to say, while David was reigning, there were few times in later history in the Old Testament that they enjoyed the peacefulness, the prosperity, and the luxurious matter of a reign like they knew in David's time. Then verse 9, Also I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more as at the beginning, and since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. You and I notice in statements like that, when God directly affirmed there were many times that enemies had the upper hand over Israel. There were many times the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and yea, many others actually enjoyed great victories over Israel, taking them into captivity, suffering them in oppression. He next says, Moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee in house. Here was a time that God then through Nathan told David, I'll build you a house. As we asked earlier, what was that house? Verse 11 goes on to read it like this. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers. Thou will raise up thy seed after thee and shall be which shall be of thy sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take away my mercy from him, as I took it away from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. There several more details are given. Details not unlike some of these. God made a specific promise to David. A place will be provided for my people to dwell. They currently were dwelling in this area in Canaan, a place called Palestine. What place here did God have in mind? What other place did He have in consideration? He also went on to say, David, I'll build you a house. You and I know well that David desired to build God a house. It came to be known as that temple, ultimately as Solomon constructed it. But what was the house that God promised to build David? In light of those questions, I would ask that you think about that large lettered statement at the very bottom of that slide. This is one of those places in the Old Testament in which we come face to face with a dramatic prophecy. And as our mind races to consider its fulfillment, we immediately reach the following conclusion. And I've tried to state it here. This prophecy had a specific near fulfillment in the sense that David's very son Solomon would live to appreciate many of the features that are found in this passage. It is true that David did build the temple, or rather Solomon did build the temple, and we remember that there was a blessing of peacefulness that did characterize the reign of Solomon. The people enjoyed freedom from their enemies. They enjoyed a time when at least for a little while they were not taken out of the land. 
But I think we can easily appreciate that was not the certain penultimate fulfillment of this passage. I would ask that you think on the next slide about some additional features as we draw some additional conclusions from it. The statements that we might immediately make having to do with David's desire. Many of the last chapters in 1 Chronicles take us to David's ex explicit presentation and preparation for the building of that temple. But God, in fact, told him, David, you are a man of blood. You have shed much blood, and you will not build the temple. That will be reserved for your son. You'll notice some of these comments. Isn't it true that as we read in this passage and in the one in Psalms, God did say, your seed, David, shall reign forever. As you and I think about the Old Testament kingdom of Judah, what might you and I recall about the kings of Judah? Those men like Rehoboam and Asa and Jehoshaphat and Abijah and a whole host of the others. Isn't it true that every one of them was a descendant of David? It is true then that God's promise to David in the near term was fulfilled because God did establish his dynasty and every one of the kings of Judah was a direct descendant of David. In that sense, God was faithful ever so much and true to that statement that he had made to him. But again, notice God used the word forever. There was something about an eternal reign under description. You might notice that that leads us to the next slide too. The near-term fulfillment is overshadowed by the distant fulfillment. Because notice at the top, that distant fulfillment causes us with such excitement to think about the placement you and I occupy today as members of the body of Christ, as Christians, as those devoted unto God. After all, look at how this particular slide begins. It is a stirring thing to put before us the following consideration. The reign of David. One of the things that so frequently is noted about Jesus in the New Testament is that He is the Son of David. In fact, in the very first verse of the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1 verse 1, there wasn't it said that speaking of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, He's the Son of David. He's the Son of Abraham. There's something to be noted about the fact that a thousand years earlier there was a man named David and he reigned as the physical king over Israel and the one who was now to occupy the principled position through the remainder of all of time. He was a descendant of David. He flowed through the loins, if you please, and is a sharer in the great promises that were vouchsafed to David. Not only that, you might appreciate that there's a reference in the text before us at First Chronicles 17, as Brother Glenn read that a moment ago, to the throne of David. David's reign. David is king. As you and I think about the New Testament, as we give thought to the reign of Christ, how often is his reign likened to that of David? I would ask you to think of it perhaps like this. When the angel Gabriel made these stirring words to Mary in Luke chapter 1, in verses 31, 32, and 33 of that chapter, remember even prior to the very birth of Jesus, the angel had words like these to share, Behold, thou shalt be with child. Mary was to conceive and bring forth a son, and the angel even affirmed, Call his name Jesus. Furthermore, the next two verses then went on to say, 
And can you imagine how Mary must have reacted and responded to hear the angel make statements like this, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Those two descriptions already lifting high above the common manner of the birth of a baby boy. But the angel went on to say, not only would he be great, and not only would he be the Son of the Highest, we notice that the God of heaven shall give unto him the throne of David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end, and he shall reign forever. One more time a reference to David. This babe that was soon to be born, to him would be given the throne of David. Immediately, Mary's mind must have raced back ten centuries to reflect upon the promises made to David so long before. The fact that of his seed there would rise a king and that king would have a kingdom of which there would be no end. You might appreciate even furthermore that Jesus, as often as himself stated to be a descendant of David, we noted earlier that statement in Matthew 1 verse 1, but two others that seemingly occupy such a vital position would in fact be the text in 2 Timothy 2.8, where there, as Paul preached to those of that day, comment was made of the fact that this one Christ, this one namely Jesus, the very one who is of the seed of David. Maybe one last time, and it seem, seemingly has always been intriguing to me, that in Matthew 1 verse 1, and then in the very last chapter of the New Testament, Revelation 22, it's almost like a set of bookends that one more time an attachment is made between David and Jesus. Revelation 22 verse 16, nearly the last paragraph in all the book of God. That unity and that association is highlighted again. Maybe with those thoughts in mind it brings us to this. It is said in Revelation 3-7 that Jesus has the key of David. What might that key be? One uses a key to open something, or as the case may be, to lock something closed. And yet on that occasion, with regard to the congregation under description, the statement was made, Jesus has the key of David. Can you and I, and I not readily appreciate that there is one who absolutely, by virtue of his position as second member of the Godhead, he is one who can open access to God. He is one who has made that available. And for those who are faithful members of His kingdom, they have the blessed enjoyment of the promise of eternal life forevermore. That's what He uses that key to do, isn't it? Isn't it true then as we come near the close of that slide? We also notice that statement was made by Nathan to David on this occasion that this kingdom would never end. It would always be. Now, frankly, you and I know that Jews, those who were the descendants in the Old Testament era, they longed for the physical appreciation of that promise. They wanted a kingdom for which there was a capital city that never, ever ceased to be. No enemy ever overwhelmed it. No enemy ever overcame it. But, of course, you and I know that that physically wasn't to be. For, after all, the Romans conquered them. The Grecians conquered them, the Medo-Persians conquered them, and later they were subjected to a whole host of other enemy forces, and they often did not come out victorious. But yet God specifically told David, there shall be an eternal kingdom. As you and I then think about those last statements, doesn't it remind us of what Daniel had asserted in Daniel 2.44? 
when the image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in that dream, you might even call it a nightmare, as he saw the particular pieces and the rock crushed into its lower portions and pulverized it. That rock, of course, was representative of a kingdom that would be established in the days of the Roman kings, and God especially had Daniel to make this statement. The kingdom, once established, would never end. All of these harmonize to bring us back to the text of 1 Chronicles 17. And it does so, pointing us directly to the church of our Lord, the church of which you and I are a part today. Isn't it true that you and I might at least give immediate thought to the answers to the two questions we raised? First of all, who was that principal figure that would serve as the seed of David and the one over whom the ruling admonition would last forever? It was Jesus. It was none other than Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as far as the kingdom over which He would rule, the kingdom over which He would reign, the one in which His people would dwell peacefully forevermore and never would they be removed. He wasn't talking about Israel, physical Israel. He wasn't talking about anywhere in Palestine. He was talking about the church. The church was the ultimate fulfillment of these blessed promises God made through Nathan to Daniel, or rather to, to David, so many years ago. In 1 Timothy 3.15, we have these inspired words from Paul to Timothy. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the house of God. This house that you and I found described here, when God said to David that I'll build you a house, that house is the very church. Ten centuries down the stream of time, one would have to go before that church was established. But once established, it would never be destroyed. And that church, of course, now 2,000 years later, is still going strong. We today still enjoy its benefits, its blessings. Not only that, can we not see? So many other passages join in a marvelous chorus to point us directly to this conclusion. In Jeremiah 23, verses 3 in fact, 3 through 8 or 9 or so, we read about the fact that unto the house of David a righteous branch would in fact come to exist. This righteous branch would be a king. You and I notice easily that fulfillment. Jesus was the righteous branch of David. And not only that, Jesus, of course, was that great king mentioned on that occasion. Maybe this would be an appropriate time to pause and to think one more time. The church is such a special organization. It is a living organism in which we appreciate long, long before it ever came to exist, God told David about it. David never lived to see its physical existence. He died long before the church was ever established. But he was promised that in his descendancy there would be one to reign over that church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church in Colossians 1.18, we read, He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Doesn't that sound a lot like this passage? He, Christ, has the preeminence, the ruling power and factor of God. It may well be in light of that we reach that marvelous refrain from 1 Timothy 6.15. As Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Speaking of Christ, He is the blessed and only potentate, 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It seems as if, as often as we've heard it, we are seeing a reminder of it again tonight. The Bible converges on Jesus. The Old Testament directly casts a strong focus from a lens upon Him. And the New Testament casts a lens on the fact He was here and that He's coming back again. Not to set foot on this earth, but to take His blessed servants home to glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Perhaps in fairness to those comments... Isn't it sweet to think about the work of Christ as highlighted in Zechariah 6? In verses 12 and 13 of that chapter, the prophet Zechariah joined in this description as well as he made reference to the fact that there's coming a time when one would reign simultaneously as both priest and king. That never happened in the Old Testament from the time of the kinghood onward. Remember, the kings were always, of course, of the descendants of David, but yet the priests were always of the descendants of Levi. And they came out of separate tribes. David was out of Judah, but the priests, of course, were out of Levi. And yet in the Old Testament, that never then could have merged into one man. But as you and I come to the New Testament era, there's Jesus, the Christ, who is, of course, presently both priest and king. You and I know so well that that is a powerful premise. We depend on His priesthood because it's only in that way our sins are forgiven. And we also depend on His kingship because only by that do we have access to the Father. To think of both of them brings us to the very next passage. We have what otherwise might be a very intriguing passage. That text of Amos chapter 9 as well as a presentation in Acts chapter 15. It may well be as we read that Acts 15 passage, that would be a very great stumbling block because in it we find in the New Testament era an absolute statement to the tabernacle of David. You and I might pause to wonder, what is the tabernacle of David in the New Testament era? David is long since dead. I suppose we would have little interest to know except for a prophecy that Amos gave us. In Amos chapter 9 is the very place from which James quoted in that Acts 15. Both of them refer to the church. You and I know well that Amos even spoke about the grandeur and the majesty of the church. We might again pause to ask, isn't it then a tragedy when in the mind of some the church is looked upon as trivial, as unimportant, as non-essential, as a matter to be taken or left? When in fact we know the church has been orchestrated by the power of God, yea, through the centuries of time, and quite frankly, it was in the mind of God from the annals of even distant eternity. In Ephesians 3 verses 10 and 11, the statement is made in this way to the intent that now to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose. The church is thus an arrangement that is of the greatest significance. In closing that slide, we now notice these conclusions seem certain that in this passage, when God through Nathan spoke about the seed of David, he was referring primarily to Jesus. David, there's coming a time when of your seed one will rise to the greatest preeminence. He will in fact reign over the house which I will found, and that house is the church. 
Today, when we then think about the church, I would submit that you and I can even reflect upon the promises that God made to David. At this point, those were made 3,000 years ago. Isn't it amazing how our God is in control of time? How that He is able to orchestrate and maneuver the matters of men to bring about His will. No wonder in closing that slide, we might notice Acts chapter 2, verse number 30 is one final statement of that slide before we turn to the next. In the midst of that sermon on the Pentecost day, when Peter preached with such greatness about the establishment of the church, of those statements, among the things he said was this, Jesus was raised to reign on David's throne. The Lord is reigning today on David's throne. He reigns in absolute majesty, absolute regal royalty. And He does so desire us that you and I would submissively come before Him, to bow in submission before Him. And may I ask, have you done that and have I done it? If so, do you continue day by day to live in submission to His empire, to His kingdom, to His commandments? You and I know that a king's authority is absolute. In the ancient era, if you disobeyed a king... Death was your lot. You may remember in the days of Esther when she chose to come in before him. She took a risk on her life. If the scepter was not dipped in her direction, she would have been put to death. Today, if you and I do not submit to the king, the king namely Jesus Christ, death will be our ultimate end. Even now we submit to this death of separation from him. That death that does characterize sin... But we also know that if we die in that condition, if our life in this flesh ends in that condition, then we're eternally separated from Him. What a horrendous, terrible, awful, almost unimaginably horrible condition to be in. Tonight, are you a faithful Christian? Have you bowed in submission in that kingdom known as the church? I hope that you have. I trust that many of us have. And as we continue to walk in that way, we shall know the blessings that were placed in a passage like this one. Notice again, it says, My people shall never be moved. You can rest assured that day by day, no matter what, the matters of life come your way as long as you are resting upon Christ, faithfully obeying and submitting to Him. There can be a calmness, a serenity, a tranquility, and a peace. Because didn't Jesus say in John 14, 27, My peace I give unto you. In John 16, a statement was made wherein Jesus Himself affirmed, Although the world brings you tribulation, I will bring you peace. If tonight you don't know that peace, it's because you're not a citizen of this kingdom of peace. You're not one who can rest upon the promises that God made to David so long ago. If you're not a faithful member of the church this evening, we could assist you in making it so. The plan of salvation demands these things be attended to and there are no exceptions or exemptions. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. You need to repent of your sins, confess His name in the hearing of others as the Son of God and then be baptized. If you'll do that, He will introduce you to this kingdom. You'll be brought into it. If you now continue to live faithfully, you'll know residence in that kingdom. But if you stumble and fall out of that kingdom, you act in a way that brings reproach upon yourself, upon Christ, upon that kingdom, come back to your first love. Jesus understands. He knows the sins that can often come our way. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted, but he never succumbed to it. He can give you and me the strength to overcome it too. If you need to return to your first love tonight, we'd be delighted to pray with you. We'd be honored to pray on your behalf. We would only ask you, let us know the way we could do that and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.